Hello and welcome to Newsnight. I am Ladi Akiri Dolwale. Thank you for joining us. The war in Ukraine, which has gone on since February the 24th, 2022, has taken attention away from some other happenings much closer home for Nigeria. The security situation created by political instability and fights between established authorities and a mix of extremist groups in Mali has had dire consequences for neighboring countries and the sub-region as a whole. This is even more so given what had previously happened in Libya and the resultant flow of arms from there to other places. Mali has witnessed two military coups in the intervening period. Coups have also occurred in Burkina Faso, Guinea-Conakry and Guinea-Bissau, making the situation even more complex to resolve. Many analysts have said that there is a nexus between all these situations and the persistent security challenges facing Nigeria at this time because of open borders, another country must focus on these. My guest on the program today says that the continuous sit-tight syndrome being exhibited by some of the region's leaders has led to more political instability as well as insecurity. Newsnight talks to the former permanent secretary at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Ambassador Joe Keshi. Your Excellency, thank you for your time. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. I would like to talk today to you about uh, something which is going on, but it seems as if world attention has been taken away from it, and uh, attention on the African continent has also been taken away from it uh, by the war in Ukraine, and that's the situation in Mali. Let's start off with Mali. Uh, First, there was uh, the, the extremist Islamic uh, groups that uh, attempted to take over government there. And then there was a coup, uh, an interim government, then a second coup. And now there are all kinds of uh, security implications, not just for that country, but for surrounding countries. Let me begin by asking you, what do you make of the situation in Mali? I think the situation in Mali is regrettably very unfortunate. Mali was once uh, a very peaceful uh, country until the, um, the, uh, the Tuaregs, you know, uh, engaged the government and uh, made a lot of uh, gains, defeated the government in a number of ways. And, um, uh, since then, these uh, separatist groups and religious groups have made uh, life in Mali very difficult. To compound this situation, there has been, uh, at least in the last 10 years, if I remember very correctly, there has been about three coups uh, led by the, of course, coups are led by the military. The, the military, uh, the argument is that uh, they are unhappy with uh, the um, government conduct of the war. They claim that they did not get enough uh, uh, weapons to fight uh, the well-armed, uh, you know, separatists and religious and the jihadist uh, group that uh, launched the attack, I think, from northern, uh, northern Mali. And that completely destabilized the peace, a peaceful Mali as we used to know it. And that's where we are today. And um, with the economic sanction against uh, 
mildly following the last uh, coup. I think um, the, the situation has been compli uh, complicated. And then you also have the French and the Germans uh, military that have been on the ground for, for years uh, pulling out as well. So we have a very ugly situation in Mali that uh, I believe needs to handle with uh, care. Because you see, as long as you have contiguous borders, some of these crises spill over, can spill over into you know, another territory like Ivory Coast and uh, neighboring uh, countries around uh, Mali. And as you rightly pointed out, yes, the world today is focused on Ukraine. And as uh, usual, Africa and African problems have been uh, forgotten. And, and this is why when some of us talk about the failure of leadership in this continent, particularly in a country like uh, Nigeria, it, it is real because these are the things that happen when, when there are global issues, your own issue is immediately forgotten. And nobody returns to it to deal with it until it again uh, becomes, um, uh, you know, um, uh, becomes more complex or intractable. And that's where we are today with uh, Mali. Given the situation you've just painted, uh, you alluded to it towards the end of the answer to the question where you talked about the French and, and the Germans. I want to focus on the French. And uh, uh, why I want to focus on them is to say that it does appear that at the beginning, when this conflict was just uh, developing, the French, in fact, seemed to have saved the government of Mali, because otherwise, these uh, secessionist groups, uh, these uh, terrorist uh, groups, would have overrun the country. And they were on the verge of doing so until the French stepped in. So where along the line do you think the relationship went sad, uh, do you think? I, I, I think the problem, for, the way I see it, you know, it, it happens everywhere. When, when a military goes for an operation like um, the one you just referred to in Mali, they should, they should go by the Powell uh, Doctrine. Number one, you define your mission very clearly. Number two, you also define your date of exit. In other words, you do not go down there and say forever. It is because the, uh, as far as the, um, as far as the Malians are concerned, they felt that the, the, the presence of this powerful military has not helped the country. That is, they, they, that they, the battle is still going on. Mali is facing the same problem from the separatists and the jihadists. And what, what is the extent of keeping a military force that has come to help them over a decade? with no success story, beyond the fact that the French are there, the Germans are there. Listen, I can tell you, I can tell you this also, that in, in a way, it also affected us in a place like Liberia and Sierra Leone. We actually overstayed our welcome, which is why today, at the end of our stay, particularly in, in, in uh, Sierra Leone, you know, at the end of our stay, our troops were tired and, um, the British capitalized on that opportunity to come in to help. At the dying moment of that crisis, today, listen to the British take credit for saving Sierra Leone. When they came at the 11th hour, as against Nigerian troops that have spent 10 good years in that place. And this is the situation you find in Mali. The people honestly said to, I mean, believe that 
the president of the French has not been too helpful to them. That's number one. And of course, the second thing is that with the coups and the counter coups and the coups, you know, I, I don't think that uh, the, the French government not being able to persuade the coup plotters or the, the military, you know, to stay in the barracks and face the war and leave the democratic uh, dispensation to continue, uh, they, they had to part ways. And, and I think this is just what happened. Given that, given that scenario, of course, uh, when the series of coups uh, started, once the first coup occurred uh, that removed uh, 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 the president at the time, uh, Mr. Keita, uh, ECOWAS stepped in uh, with in a mediatory role uh, to try to resolve things, uh, and the ECOWAS mediation was uh, being, of course, spearheaded by Nigeria uh, under the auspices of uh, former president. Uh, Dr. Goodluck Jonathan. Uh, but that seemed to also have gotten stuck uh, in some quicksand. Uh, the Malians have become intransigent. They have said that it doesn't matter how much sanctions they placed on them, uh, sanctions ECOWAS placed on them, they were still going to go about uh, their job uh, the way they deemed fit without any reference to that uh, body or to the international community. Again, is this a situation of uh, wrong strategy? Or is it just a question of everybody mind your own business? It's it's both because from the from for me from the Malian perspective, look, the the guys the guys who took over power in Mali, let's let's get one thing clear: they did not do it out of an autistic motive. They do not do it because they love Mali so much. They simply did it because they want power. That's let's get that very clear. Because here is a situation, you sent the military, you know, to defend the territorial integrity of the nation, to fight off the separatists and the jihadists from the north. And then you turned around, you returned to the capital, and then you seized power, and you seized, you have refused to hand over power to anybody. Secondly, the excuse you gave for taking over power was that the government was not able to provide you the weapons that you needed to fight. Has, as uh, as uh, you've stayed through about twice now, have you improved on what the civilians were doing? In other words, have you provided the needed weapons to your soldiers to fight off the rebels and the jihadists and all the characters in the you know, uh, creating the problems? Of course, the answer is no. So here we are with, with uh, an, uh, an ambitious set of military officers in Mali Look, if they are serious, they could have accepted the ECOWAS um, uh, proposal to, to put a date and transit from military to a civilian regime and then go ahead and focus on winning the war. But what did they do? They want a five-year term. I, I can show you that even if they succeed with or without ECOWAS in maintaining that five years, after that five years, the same gentleman, I'm trying to remember his name, would again contest for election and stay in power. Are, so you, referring are, to, you, know, are you referring to Colonel Asimi Goita? Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's, it's, it's both an unfortunate situation, as I keep using that word. They should have actually focused on winning the war, but they came and took over government. Now they've been asked, go and focus on the war, spend one year or some months, transit to a democratic system so that there could be 
a government that can do some reconciliation and bring everybody together, but no, they prefer to stay in power. That then brings to, you alluded to it also when you were speaking about it in the answer to the first question, when you talked about its effect on contiguous borders and countries that have direct borders with Mali and some which do not. Already we have seen that uh, uh, there has been a coup in uh, Burkina Faso, where the government there has also been removed. Uh, uh, there was an attempted coup in uh, uh, Guinea-Bissau. Uh, there was a successful one in uh, Guinea-Conakry. Uh, and then, uh, so one is beginning to see uh, the effect of this. I mean, if you start off with Burkina Faso, Burkina Faso seems to have had the same uh, backstory as Mali, which is that it was faced with the same uh, uh, insurgent extremist groups, and there, but there was a democratic process in place. So, uh, but then before that, we had a military strongman in uh, Blaise Campari who had held on to power for quite a long time. And these soldiers who took over in Burkina Faso are said to have been uh, amongst his military henchmen when he was in power. Well, you know, number one, he, he uh, Campari stayed too long. And that's the problem when leaders stay too long. They, they, they compound the, the problem of the nation itself. But look, here is, here is the deal that if care is not taken and if this problem is not nipped in the board, either in Mali or Burkina Faso, already I hear that the situation in Burkina Faso is even getting worse. So one way or the other, ECOWAS must broaden its mediation, uh, uh, its mediation uh, process to try and find a way to nip the problem in Burkina Faso and find a solution to the, to the problem in, uh, in Mali. You know, the most unfortunate part of this is that unlike what was done a couple of years when uh, um, led by Nigeria, ECOMOG was put in place to help sort out this problem militarily. Unfortunately, today, without Nigeria, and we have our own internal, internal uh, problems, you know, that the military for 10 years or 12 or more has also been trying to, you know, resolve. Um, we do not have the military. At, at the, the leaders in the continent do not have the military at their disposal to send to assist Mali or to assist Burkina Faso. And here is the fact that these are all part of the Saharan region that is crisis ready. And if care is not taken, if care is not taken, as we should have also learned from our own lessons in Nigeria, when you allow these things to stay too long, to, to, to fester for too long, look, they begin to expand. They begin to, they become intractable. And you have no idea exactly where it would end until the, the rebel groups get tired. And, and, and the unfortunate thing is that these rebel groups, the jihadists, they never get tired. They are, they are very determined, far, far more determined than the soldiers anywhere that I know of, you know? So one way or the other, ECOWAS must find a probably seek international assistance, you know, to resolve this problem in Mali and Burkina Faso before they spread uh, to Benin. Uh, to northern Ghana, where I think that they've, they've started some uh, problems there also. And, and you can see the way this is going across the Saharan region. And um, uh, we, we must find a way to resolve this. You know, it's, uh, I think the continent of the region, West Africa region, is going to be in some uh, problems in the next couple of uh, 
you know, years. You talked about Nigeria. Of course, there are many people who have said that uh, uh, ECOWAS essentially is Nigeria and that if Nigeria does not act, uh, ECOWAS is hamstrung in very many ways. Uh, but, and of course, Nigeria has its own problems now. And uh, the other countries uh, are looking to it for leadership. Some are not. Uh, and uh, there are external forces also involved. Do you think that ECOWAS, led by Nigeria, went about the, the business of trying to diffuse uh, the security challenge in Mali, especially in the aftermath of the coup and the, those that followed it, uh, in a negative way? Because what seemed to follow was that there were then, I don't know whether you want to call them copies, copycat coups uh, in other places. There was the one in Guinea-Conakry. Uh, there was the one I talked about in Burkina Faso. There was an attempt uh, in Guinea-Bissau, which uh, ultimately failed. Uh, but again, um, did we go about it the wrong way? And by we, I meant Nigeria and ECOWAS, uh, particularly in the case of Mali. No, no I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think that uh, we went about it the wrong way. I think we need to isolate this. Uh, we need to isolate all these problems and take them differently. You know, because of the, the, the internal problems in all the, like in Guinea, for example, you know, uh, um, the, the president of Guinea was trying, uh, you know, to extend uh, his tenure. And that's, you know, and that part, uh, was one of the strong reasons for the coup. So I don't think, look, ECOWAS did what it needed to do to try and persuade, you know, um, uh the military to return to to barracks they have no any there was no option no any other option on the table the only option that would have been on the table would have been force but ECOWAS today without nigeria is it's not in any position to apply force so the best they can do was to mount a diplomatic offensive to try and resolve the crisis so in my view they did write the best they could but because that was the only available option now they've imposed sanctions the problem with sanctions is that it takes a long time to kick in, but it will work to a large extent. But as long as the borders of these neighboring countries, now Burkina Faso is, uh, and uh, one or two other countries are not observing the, 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 the sanctions, so it will not work as effectively as one would have, uh, as one would have wanted. But whether Ecuador did the right thing, in my view, I think they did the right thing. That was the only option available for Ecuador mediation trying to reconcile the parties and trying to persuade the military to return to barracks and ensure that the democratic uh, process in mali in burkina faso and other places you know uh survives ecowas one would have thought uh the countries that make up ecowas would have learned the lesson uh by the 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 two uh, crisis situations you referenced earlier in uh, Liberia and in Sierra Leone, which were essentially uh, the result of uh, seat tight, as they were called, leaders uh, in those places. But we seem not to have uh, taken the necessary lessons. And in some instances, that is what has found uh, this. Uh, let's take uh, Guinea, for example, uh, where pre the then president, Alpha Conde, uh, after serving his two uh, uh, constitutionally allowed terms, uh, then somehow managed to get himself into a third term. Uh, the same thing has happened in Cote d'Ivoire, where President Alassane Ouattara is now in his third term. And there are other places where this is becoming 
uh, the situation, especially not too far from Nigeria. In neighboring Cameroon, uh, President Paul Bia has been there for more than uh, uh, 30 years as, uh, uh, as president. So do you think, of course, there is a direct nexus between all this instability uh, we witnessed in the sub-region and this alleged sit-tight uh, thing happening with many of its uh, more prominent rulers? You know, one of the criticisms of uh, history is that people hardly learn from history. And this is exactly what you are seeing in uh, all the places you have, uh, you have mentioned. The leaders felt that they were capable, they were strong enough, they had the political support to extend you know, their, 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 their stay in power. And even when, uh, like in the case of uh, Guinea, ECOWAS made a lot of efforts to, to, to plead with the president, to persuade the president not to do a third term, not to change the constitution to do a third term. He insisted that he was going to do it. And the consequence is what we all know today. So people don't learn from histories. And look, yeah, I think it's the arrow of power. People just love this thing called power. And once they get it and they enjoy it for the first two, three terms, they just think that they are invisible because, you know, Look, they, so, sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes the ways of politicians are very, are very different. I do not know what kind of tea leaves they read or they take <laughs> to start with, you know, because they invariably all the time they do miscalculate the situation and get into unnecessary trouble. And that's what you find all over the, all over the place. And what happens, you have to use some um, dictatorial uh, tactics to maintain yourselves in power. In all these countries you have mentioned, there's certainly no way democracy is going to flourish as we know it. It is going to be dictatorship because they do all kinds of uh, funny things to stay in power. No opposition, no free press, you just name it, nothing. All because they want to stay in power. Why don't you just save yourself? After spending seven or eight years in power, what is if you have not done anything in the first four, three, I mean, in the first four, five, or six years, there's something you are going to do for the next 10 years. I mean, we have seen this all over the place. So you, this is a problem in the region that it is all about power and, uh, and self and not about the interests of the people. And that is why I hope you know that part of the problems in, in all these countries we also named is poverty under development. And this is a crisis uh, you find when leaders stay too long and when their focus is on themselves rather than on the development of, of, uh, of, uh, of the region. I mean, look, sometimes people like me just think it's a tragedy. You just have to look around the world and see that even countries that were not in existence when Africa became independent, you know, they, they are doing far, far better in almost every field than Africa. And we are still behaving as if we were in the 60s, when we had all these uh, unfortunate uh, crises of coups, counter coups and underdevelopment. When I was young, we were talking of underdevelopment. I'm getting old, I'm old now, we are still talking of underdevelopment. You can just take a look around the world. You know, today in this country, people love to fly to Dubai for every holidays, every time, and then they come back boasting 
that we've been to Dubai, or oh, we've been to Qatar, or oh, we've been to these places. But they forgot that when we gained independence, there was no Dubai. Singapore was just trying to separate itself from uh, Malaysia. Malaysia, yes. Not to talk of, yeah, not to talk of uh, the other countries, you know, in the Asian tiger that transformed themselves within 30 years. Within 30 years, they transformed themselves. 60 years, we have not been able to transform ourselves. I'm talking of this country now, not to talk of the others. It is the same story anywhere you travel around this continent. And you begin to wonder where and how did we get it from? So we need to begin to have a conversation, not just in this country, but all over the region that, why is it that we are, as, in everything, we are at the bottom of it all. And like you said, at the bottom, at the start of this program, everybody has actually forgotten the crisis in Mali, in Burkina Faso, and elsewhere in this region, more because everybody is focused on Ukraine. And why shouldn't we be worried? We should. Yes, we should be worried. And, and, and because I, I, as I referenced at the start of the program, the security challenge posed by Mali, Burkina Faso, uh, and the crisis in those two countries, as well as elsewhere in the contiguous uh, uh, border areas uh, relating to Nigeria, are, uh, to a large extent, fanning the security challenges that Nigeria itself has, and which, to some extent, is preventing it uh, from uh, developing and, uh, uh, and growing. So let, let me again now go back to those contiguous borders uh, you, you referenced. Uh, earlier on in the decade, uh, there were those who talked about uh, what happened in Libya as being the source of, of, of all of this instability, the fall of uh, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi uh, in 2011 uh, being the start of all of this and the flow of arms uh, that then moved from there to all these other countries. But if, you, if you're in Nigeria and you take a look at the map, uh, there are other countries that will also be of uh, concern now, uh, even apart from Mali and Burkina Faso, from where arms and um, people could flow uh, downwards into Nigeria. If you take, uh, for example, Chad, which is one of, the, one of those whose uh, uh, forces are supposed to have joined Nigeria in fighting Boko Haram, uh, more recently, there was a transition, or I guess the transition is still ongoing in, uh, in Chad, uh, between the longtime ruler Idris Debi Itno and now his son, Mohammed, who is also in uh, the army. That transition has proven to be quite delicate, and it has had impact on uh, the cooperation with regards to Boko Haram. The same thing we talked about in Cameroon, where there's another longstanding uh, ruler, uh, as well. So again, much closer to home, there are difficulties. And uh, I'm wondering if shouldn't Nigeria's uh, foreign policy, after all, it is supposed to be Afrocentric, uh, shouldn't Nigeria's foreign policy take into cognizance this security situation uh, as part of what it does on an everyday basis, not only when there is a crisis? I, I think, I, I think, uh... Uh, we've always done that. Nigeria has always done that. I, I, I just think that uh, I, I just think that uh, a number of uh, our institutions, you know, um, has failed us. 
you, you mentioned arms flowing from from yeah, Libya, from Libya. After, yes, the collapse of the, after the collapse of the, you know. Listen, how do these arms get into all these countries? How did these arms get into all these countries? You have the intelligence uh, community. You have the, uh, what do they call them, customs at the border. In some borders, you have more than customs. You have the security agents, you have the health authorities. You just name them, you have everybody at the border. And the arms were able to flow into your country. How? I tell you a story. We knew, Nigeria knew during the Ecomog days that arms were coming from Libya into, um, uh, into, um, into Liberia. And they confronted the then president, Rufa Brioni, and tried as much as he can to persuade him to stop the flow of arms because it comes through Burkina Faso and goes to uh, Ivory Coast into Liberia. And Ecomog leaders told him that they were going to block the access so that these arms cannot get into Liberia. But they also warned him that if we block this route, the arms will not be able to get into Liberia, but they will stay in Ivory Coast. And nobody knows what will happen. Because the old man was, uh, was old and almost senile, but, it, you know, but still remained in office, the people who were involved in transiting, I mean, uh, transporting these arms or getting in this arms business were his generals. And so when Ekomo blocked the flow of arms into uh, Liberia, and they were not able to get into um, uh, Liberia, of course, they stayed in the... Uh, in uh, Ivory Coast. A couple of years later, some of these hands were what they used in fighting in Ivory Coast a few years ago. So back to Nigeria. How could all these arms come from Libya to so many countries? Our intelligence for how many years could not stop it. The uh, border guards, uh, customs do not find these things, but you are able to harass traders every day at the ports and at the border towns. But in everything, you did not spot arms coming into the country. Something must be wrong somewhere. Something must be wrong somewhere. It is the inability of the institutions that are supposed to have taken care of this problem. And we have all, you know, look, in this country in particular, there are no consequences for failure. Nobody has asked the intelligence, how did we not dictate this in time? Even if you, I, I want to even believe that intelligence probably has a very good idea. But it was left for customs to check. So if the arms come in, nobody should say, oh, our borders are porous. Our borders are not porous because almost all parts of the from Seme to Sokoto and uh, everywhere in, uh, uh, across uh, this thing or from uh, the other end to the Cameroonian border, you have custom posts in every place. So how do the arms get into the country? The same thing you can ask our brothers in other countries. 
where were your intelligence, where were your military, where were your custom officers that these arms could flow in into the country? And you did not see them, you did not dictate them, you did not inform the appropriate authorities to deal with the situation. You did not mount, as a result, you did not mount diplomatic uh, uh, engagement with the countries along the flow in order to warn them, stop, first of all, take my again, Chad and uh, Nigeria. They should have, if they had, they should have won Chad from day one. And I think to some extent they knew and they won. No more flow of arms from Chad into Nigeria. And if we are taking appropriate action at that point, we'll probably not be in the mess that we are today. We can say the same thing for others. In other words, I'm saying there are institutions created to save these problems from happening, but they failed. And that's where we are today. No matter what anybody says to you, these arms do not come from heaven. They are not like mama that descended into heaven. If they travel from Libya, look at all the route they have to take. Look at the countries they pass through. Where were the security or the custom officials? And when the intelligence knew, when the people, when we knew, when the Burkina Faso people knew, when everybody knew, what did all these countries along the line, what did they do to stop the flow of arms? The failure to stop the flow of arms into neighboring countries and into other countries is the price we are paying today. Distinguished Ambassador, uh, I, I, I must then uh, go further to ask then that, I mean, if we are having these failures, uh, as you described them, uh, given the scenarios on the ground, the nation's own security, which is about the biggest thing that everybody is dealing with now uh, in Nigeria, the failure of uh, security, uh, the challenges posed by that failure, the kidnappings and all the other things, the killings uh, uh, across uh, various uh, regions in the country, the whole issue of what we do with our borders. Uh, I'm wondering, someone in your position uh, can sort of weigh in on either side. Is it a foreign policy challenge or is it a national strategy pro uh, problem or is it a combination of both? And I ask the question for this reason. Other countries, I mean, the war in Ukraine is about spheres of influence and about what Russia perceives to be its security situation vis-a-vis -vis whatever Ukraine does. In that, kind of, in that kind of scenario, do you see something where Nigeria ought to also talk about its spheres of influence, particularly when you talk about security and about what's going on in all those other countries, especially as they will eventually have an impact on what is happening in Nigeria. You talked about the fact that we already do that in terms of foreign policy, but I want you to elaborate on that and are we really doing it at the level at which we should, given what is now happening? No, uh, I don't know what is being done today. But I do know that uh, when I was uh, in service, even as a middle-level officer, we paid very close attention to our neighbors. And that was that period in which I'm sure if you are, if you are not as old as myself, I'm sure you are, you are, you are not too far away. You'd have heard that we're very fond of using this word, good neighborliness. It was one of the policies we pursued with our neighbors in those days, you know, to ensure that uh, we, 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 we have some, 
considerable influence and engagement, you know, with our neighbors in order to protect our own uh, sovereignty, sovereignty as well. So we did a lot, you know, with Benet, Togo, uh, Niger, uh, even Chad. And this was also why, you know, we spent a lot of uh, resources trying to resolve this in, uh, in Chad in those days. So we did, we did a lot of that, you know, sometimes. And I, I could also mention to you that uh, uh, in, the, in the 80s, I believe, when General Buhari was in uh, power, uh, as a result of the, uh, of the um, uh, let me call it mini security tracks, you know, from uh, neighboring countries on, on, on the ECOWAS region. You know, we went into six months negotiation, you know, Nigeria, Ghana, Togo, and uh, Benin. You know, in what we call, uh, and signed a document which we call the Code Apartheid, you know, agreement, which was to provide, you know, security, custom, immigration, and all this security, uh, you know, and police, you know, for, for the three countries. And unfortunately, I don't think that after that was signed and there was a change of government, anybody cared to take a look at that, uh, that document anymore. Maybe if we had taken a look at it, there were so many things about uh, police cooperation. There was a lot about custom and immigration cooperation, you know, in a way and manner that if they had engaged themselves consistently, periodically, they are able to take care of the problems I have talked about, the ferocity of our borders and they would have been able to share information to check the flow of arms from one country into the, into the other. So I think in the past, we did, we did a lot in order to accommodate, uh, you know, and to engage uh, our neighbors. Now, there's one thing we can do. I mean, there's one, there's, there, there, uh, there, it's not enough to engage our neighbors. Our own domestic setting must also, you know, uh, be, uh, be involved. And you know, as we say very often, foreign policy is an, is, a, is an extension of domestic policy. Or you could also say that there's a nexus between domestic policy and foreign policy. And so if a number of things is not being done correctly at home, one way or the other, it will also impact on our foreign policy. And I think this is where we are, where we are today. So you are right. There's a lot we can do. Look, we still have some influence. You know, one thing is, one thing good and great for Nigeria is the fact that all the countries around us believe and trust that they can get Nigeria to work with them. So it's a question of whether we are ready to engage them, engage them properly in a way and manner that we go back to what we used to do in the 80s, uh, 90s, and the 70s, where we had a close cooperation, close engagement working together and all the time meeting together to ensure that there's a sharing of information, you know, there's a, a lot of cooperation on almost all matters. In a way and manner that when you see arms flowing from one part of any of these countries, you can inform the Nigerian agencies and working together, they could nip it in the board before it gets to any of these countries. Somewhere along the line, I think this, this process is broke down. And that is why, you know, we have this situation. Look, I go back to what I said before, and anybody is free to challenge it. How on earth do the arms, look, you see, when Ghana and Togo had, a, uh, had problems a couple of years ago over smuggling, 
you know, and the, the Ghanaians were smuggling that a lot of things were being, uh, the Ghanaian, I mean, that the Togolese were smuggling. Look, when, when we sat down to look at it, we told Ghana some, some, some plain truths. Yes, you can, take a, you can take a bar of gold, put it into your pocket, you know, and walk across the border and sell it in, uh, in, uh, in Togo. But you cannot take a truck of cocoa from Ghana to Bene, and then you blame the Ghanaians. No, it's the same thing. There's no way these arms can flow from, from, um, from Libya, passing about four or five countries to get to Nigeria, and nobody stopped the, the uh, I mean, the, what do they call it? The, um, uh, um, the transport, bringing these things to this country. Am I to understand that today we do not know those who are involved in this arms business across borders? This is where cooperation, this is where engagement comes in. Engagement is one thing. Taking action is the next thing. And I think this is where we've not done too well. There is also the, of course, the role of foreign powers. When we were talking earlier about Mali, uh, we talked a little bit about the role of France. Now, uh, France is... Uh, about the biggest uh, foreign power on the African continent outside of uh, Britain. And then, of course, more recently, you have the Chinese. But I, 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 want, I want us to also take a look at the role that these foreign powers have played in either fanning or fueling or sustaining some of these conflicts right across the continent, uh, either for their own strategic interests or simply to provide a market uh, for arms uh, made by those countries. Do you think the absence of countries on the continent like Nigeria uh, has left open this vacuum uh, which these other foreign powers who are infinitely more powerful, more sophisticated in their maneuvering, uh, can then get into and use Africa almost like a playground uh, for, for, for their own interests? Um. I, I, I did an interview not too long ago, and uh, where I simply dismissed the question of uh, foreign influence in, uh, in the continent with, with the simple argument that 60 years after independence, we should not be blaming foreign powers for our problems. And uh, one of my mentors and my professor in the University of Ibadan, gave me a call and lectured me about the influence of, uh, <laughs> of, uh, of foreign bodies and said, uh, the way he put it, he said, I'm glad that I was not invited to be on the television with you because I know um, I, will, I will not like to oppose you and I know you will not like to challenge me, but you need to understand that this foreign influence is real. You know, so... Um, I will just go by what my former boss said. The foreign influence is real. I do not discard that. But I, I maintain one thing, and very simple, that the Afri Africa has been free, independent, quote-unquote, since the 60s. Some got their independence towards the end of the 60s and some early 70s. In all these years, over more than 60 years, 
we are still talking of foreign influence or inability to grow because of one conspiracy by foreign power. You know, I'm, I, it's not an argument that I strongly uh, buy. I believe and I argue and will continue to argue that so many years after independence, it was enough for us to grow up as a continent and as a, as a region and as a country like Nigeria. Let me make this point very clear. Some years ago, I used to argue that if it took America, for example, 200 years to get to where it is today, it should take us in this country and Africa less than 50 years in our effort to catch up. For one simple reason, we are not uh, pioneers. We are not pioneering or discovering anything. All we needed to do was cut and paste, cut and paste, period. And that's what we've just failed to do. So I'm not one of those who argue strongly about this whole question of foreign influence and the rest of it. Yes, it does exist. But for the foreign influence we are talking of, it do exist because of our weaknesses. And these weaknesses as a result of our refusal to grow up, to become developed, to fight poverty, to ensure that we have, you know, our people enjoy the good things of life and that many of them will not be rushing, voting with their feet, rushing out of this country. To ensure that our educational system is sound, our health system is sound, our political process is sound. I mean, if not perfect, there's no perfect one in the world. If not perfect, but functioning efficiently and properly in a way and manner that we can be proud of ourselves of what we've done for ourselves in the last couple of years. But regrettably, we've not done that. And every time we begin to talk of foreign influence, I'm very weak when it comes to arguing about foreign influence, I must confess, you know, because I think that the problem is our failure to grow up, our failure to develop, our failure to address. Initially, rather, what has happened over the years is that uh, uh, like, like this country will become a far, far more, cons uh, you know, uh, a, a country of uh, consumption rather than being productive, rather than doing things well. Look, we <laughs> I, 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 applaud the, I applaud the government, uh, you know, uh, for some like, uh, for the railway things that is being done. But in, in a situation where the world all over is moving towards bullet trains, fast trains that can get you from one end to the other within an hour, two hours. We are still going with the very slow moving uh, trains. You know, you begin to, why don't you just leave and catch up immediately? And then you send your people to study the technology and how to maintain these things. So this is the point I'm making. I'm not against, I'm, I'm not saying there are no foreign influence, there are foreign influence, but the foreign influence is still very strong in the region today because of our failure over the years to grow up. Ambassador Keshi, I want to thank you so very much uh, for your time. Uh, I, it, it, it is uh, sad that we, we are discussing some of the things that you have raised uh, at this point, but um, allow me. Uh, Your Excellency, to thank you for your time on the program today. Thank you so much for having me. That's our program today. We would, of course, like to hear from you on the conversation. Our social media handles are right there on your screen. 
You can also listen to this and previous episodes of the program via our podcast. Please visit our website, channelstv.com, to get started. I am Ladi Akiri Duluali. Goodbye. <laughs>